Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. Yeah, I've been doing this a while, a little over a year now. And come to find out, we are one of the faster-growing podcasts in the world. So I want to say thank you for helping make that happen. With your listening, we can grow. You can always leave us reviews wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And of course, on our website, thethrillerzone.com. Now on to the show. Today, a very special guest, Connor Sullivan, and his book is called Sleeping Bear. There's going to be a few of my faithful listeners who goes, oh, here he comes. He's getting ready to say one of his favorite books. What can I say? I love to read. I love finding new thriller authors. And this is one of them. And it's good on so many levels. Uh, I could count the ways, but why would I? Why not just get right into the show? Please welcome in the green room waiting for us. Connor Sullivan is now on the Thriller Zone. All right. I think we're all good to go. I'm going to get start and uh, and give us a great big welcome to Connor Sullivan to the Thriller Zone. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Dude, this book right here, we're, we're going to talk about this in depth. But when I first got this book, I'm like, what's what's all the orange? Is that is that uh, is that a sunset? And then it was is that, oh, it's the mountains. Oh, did he spray the, and I, I was perplexed forever until we got into the story. And then I'm like, oh, <laughs> very clever. Uh, yep. I love that cover. Um, and I also love the, the paperback cover, which is up here. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Great, great art on both. I was so happy with both of them. So. Now, side note, and then we're going to get to other things. Who who does the design? Because it's just solid. Um, oh, of course, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he is a wizard at Simon and Schuster, Atria Books, Emily Bessler Books. Like, I'm not kidding. He will go and design one of these in an hour and have it back and say, "Do you like that?" It's um, it's incredible. Um, wow. I think his name might be in the in the acknowledgments of Sleeping Bear, I think. Well, I can say this, that, you know, <clears throat> what you just described does not happen very often. Um, you know, I've, of course, I'm a self-pub guy. I'm not, I'm not in your league, dude. But um, the uh, going back and forth with uh, designers can be a laborious and time-consuming. Um, mm. All right, well, I don't want to take away from that because wait a minute there's 1700 pages of acknowledgements i know i know well it's my debut i had a lot of people to thank and a lot of people helped me on the way so dude please do not has it do not uh, uh be embarrassed about that because i i know what that's like or i i can imagine what it's like with a debut yeah. and uh yeah. as debuts go it's uh pretty stunning all right we're going to be chatting sleeping bear but first i want to get caught up what have you been doing since we bumped into each other at thriller fest that must have been july ish yeah i think it was i think it was june early june, june yeah started with the j uh, so over the summer i wrote the outline to my third book and then i have been in the last couple of weeks been writing the first couple of chapters 
of that. So I just, I just kind of just sat down to do that. And then I've been doing all of the, the last minute, uh, edits, um, copy edits, proofing, um, from, for Wolf Trap, my second book. So yeah. that, that's gonna That's basically done. Um, that's, I'm sure I, I thought I was going to get the ARCs this morning so I could show you. Um, but with my luck, it'll probably show up in about an hour after we get off. So. <laughs> Connor, you can always, <laughs> you can always doll me back with the selfie or something going, yeah. Dave, look, it showed up. Yeah. Well, we'll get to, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, Wolf Trap two and, uh, maybe even peek into number three in a second, but. You know, I, I follow you on Instagram and Twitter, and I think – now, you live in Montana, correct? I do, yep. But you have not always lived in Montana. So I grew up in Montana. Um, I oh. Was, yep. I was born in San Diego, um, and then I lived there for about a year, and then we moved back east for a couple of years. And I think I think I was around six when we moved to Montana. So I've been here for 25 years. In the Bozeman, Gallatin Valley, Big Sky area. Oh, my God. Okay. I'm going to go down this little rabbit hole for a second. My wife and I love to travel. We have gone back and forth across the country. We have kids in uh, Denver, Colorado Springs area. Mm -hmm. And we yeah. always talk about Montana. It's not an easy diversion. It's not like we're going to, hey, let's let's take a little uh, day trip to Montana. Yeah. But that is always a, a dream of mine to go to. It, is it as dreamy as all the pictures say it is. Yeah, it's amazing. It's my favorite place in the world. I never want to leave. It's, you know, it's just, yeah, it's home. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're right next to Yellowstone glaciers about glacier national parks, about four and a half, five hours away. Um, my parents have a lake house up in Flathead Lake, which is the biggest, um, non man-made freshwater lake west of the Mississippi. And it is, um, it's the most spectacular place. I mean, every, everywhere in Montana is incredible. Yeah. What did I, what did I hear recently that, uh, people, and it may have even appeared in sleeping bear that people, uh, Montanans actually yeah. talk it down so that people don't get the idea to move there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always <laughs> tell people it's a horrible place and you should never yeah. come. Just in the last, yeah, the, the town I grew up in is a lot different than the town that it is now. It's very, it's kind of turning into Jackson Hole, um, which kind of sucks, but I mean, it's still great. I mean, now we have nicer restaurants and, you know, shops, but yeah, yeah growing up was very working class, ranch town, ski bum town. And then now it's, yeah, it's kind of like going into Jackson Hole territory, mostly because a lot of TV shows have been taking place in our town. And the tourism industry is exploding. And then during COVID, you know, everyone wants to move out of the cities. So they come to places like Bozeman. And so yeah. that's. Speaking of uh, really crappy cities, San Diego, horrible. You would never, I mean, you wouldn't know because you were born here, but it's just, it's not nice. It's not, pr the weather yeah. sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Horrible, horrible weather. Yeah. Horrible. I've, I've heard all of those. People are not nice. The ocean? Oh, it's cold uh, and it, yeah. it's rocks. Yep. I've heard. <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> Actually, uh, my wife and I moved from Manhattan, which is quite a shock. And uh, Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm from North Carolina, but uh, we met in New York and so forth and so on. And then we moved out here and we're like, why would we ever leave? 
Yeah, I lived in I lived in Los Angeles for about five years when I was going to school, and then about a year after, and it just yeah, it just wasn't for me that kind of city. I wanted to come back home. So no, I did uh, three tours of duty in Los Angeles, and you, if you're making tons of money or what I call shit yeah. tons of money. That's one thing because then you can live up in the hills or out of the Palisades or Malibu. But this side of that, which was my case, uh, as they say, no bueno, really. Yeah. 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 It was, we, my wife and I did the same thing. We were both kind of working in entertainment, making no money. And it, I mean, if you were, if you were a millionaire, you could have the time of your life in Los Angeles, but yeah. when you're just the regular folk, it, it does get a little difficult to just do basic things around the city <laughs> living in Montana has definitely been, you know, a, a, a lot better. I will yeah. Say. Well, and the, you know, uh, air quality, uh, just style yeah. of living, forget about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, the air quality is actually not great right now. Uh, we've had some wildfires move in. Um, so I was hoping we just got Starlink that, uh, Elon Musk's, um, internet service. Uh -huh. And the smoke's been kind of affecting it, I've noticed. So I was, I was getting a little stressed out that this wouldn't work very well. But it seems to be clearing up and doing okay right now. So, nice. Yeah. I did not know about Starlink, but I will research it. Because if he's at the helm, you know it stands a pretty good chance of doing well. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We see the uh, about once a month, we see the satellites. They're in this big, um, long line. Uh, middle of the night, you can track them. And you'll just see about 50 satellites go over town once once a month, once every couple months, which is really cool to see. So Wow. Yeah. Well, that's because you don't have uh, light pollution like we do have here, right? There's no light pollution here. Right. No. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. Let, let's talk about Sleeping Bear here. I, I want to know this because I had a chance to meet the gal who is responsible for your meteoric rise to fame. And I, it was a very quick meeting. It was with uh, Jack Carr at uh, Thriller Fest in 2019. Yep. Lovely, lovely lady, both physically and spirit wise. Um, and talking about <laughs> talking about a legend in the business. Now, so I find that you did a two book deal, which must be Sleeping Bear and then Wolf Trap. Yep. Um, how in the world Treat me like I'm an idiot. It won't be tough. How in the world did you land that out of the gate? I mean, besides the fact that it's a fantastic book. Uh, do you want the, the the true story? Well, yes, that's so much okay. better than that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll condense it a little bit. Um, yeah. yeah, so basically I, I it took me about five years uh, from idea conception to having a publishable, publishable work. That was Sleeping Bear. Um, well, I had the idea when I was working on the Warner Brothers lot. Um, I was eating lunch one day, saw this article that I can't find for the life of me about how many people go missing in Alaska. I go, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I, I go on Google Maps. I look at this thing called the Alaska Triangle. There's been some, you know, Discovery Channel TV shows about it. So I started doing some research and I go, this is this would be a pretty cool thriller. And that's when I got on Google Maps. I expand it and I, you, you see how close Russia is to Alaska. You always hear that. But then you, when you see it on a map, you're like, oh, wow, this is pretty cool. So then that's when the idea of, of Russians um, kidnapping Americans comes in. And, you know, long story short, in, that, in the writing respect, you know, it took me 20 drafts to write over the course of, you know, three or four years. And then uh, my wife and I moved back to Montana. 
I was working as a, a ski instructor, teaching famous actors and billionaires how to ski. And, you know, I was on the lift one day, found out I got an agent. My whole world changed. I did a bunch of revisions. We submitted March 14th. The world shut down on the 15th of 2020. And I just remember sitting there going five years of work, you know, working odd jobs, writing full time on the side and publishing's gone. The world is gone. COVID's going to, you know, we, you know, those first couple of weeks or the first couple of months, no one knew what was going to happen. And we heard, I think we went out, we submitted to four editors, four publishing houses. And for the first four or five weeks, radio silence. And, you know, when you work on something like that and it's your dream, it's your passion, it's, it's everything that you kind of, you, you wanted to do since you were a little kid and then the world shuts down. So, you know, I was having those moments of, oh, woe is me staring at the wall with a glass of wine at night when my wife's watching The Bachelor, you know, just wanting to die. And, you know, Tiger King, was the, that was the Tiger King era. That was the, you know, whatever everyone was doing those first yeah. couple of weeks of COVID. And then you just, you know, I think I got a rejection or two after about five weeks. And then you get the call that, you know, changes your life. And that was with Emily Bessler. And that was just, you know, poof. and yeah. you know, I got it. I hopped on a Zoom call with her. She said, you know, I, I love the book. I loved your writing. You know, I just wanted to meet you. And then that's, you know, when there was a there was another interested party. So there was kind of a bidding war. It was just all surreal. It was just so surreal. And, you know, I knew from the time I started writing in this genre or being aware of this genre about, you know, six, seven years ago, and I really started writing Sleeping Bear, I'd always grown up reading Vince Flynn. So I loved Vince Flynn. Yeah. And I'd always would see the, like, you know, Emily Bessler and the acknowledgements. And then when she got her own imprint, it was Emily Bessler books that the, with the, the orange fox on the spine. Yeah. And I know, you know, Jack Carr always would say like, I always wanted to have Emily Bessler. And that's the same with me from the time from I started writing Sleeping Bear, you know, back in 2015, I was, I was like, Emily Bessler is the editor I want to work with at some point in my career. I was just so lucky and fortunate to, you know, have it coming right out of the gate. And she's been nothing but wonderful and amazing. She's just not only an incredible editor, but just an incredible person and, you know, she calms me down when I'm getting overwhelmed and, she, you know, it's just, it's perfect. It, it's, it's the greatest, it's a dream come true. That is a fabulous story. Thank you for sharing that, Connor. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, sitting on this side of the fence, daydreaming of your side of the fence, we think that the publishers, oh, you hand it off and then everything gets carried away and you get very little, if any, um, uh, interaction with them. But the fact that she for lack of a better term, kind of hold your hands periodically is comforting and uh, really cool. So mm -hmm. I, 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 I think to myself, how I wonder what, of course, this is kind of a rhetorical slash I'd have to ask her, but I wonder what that thing, besides the fact that it's a great book, what is it that hooked her? Because there's a lot of guys writing a similar kind of style yeah. But yours, yours does, there's something about it. I mean, I could not put it down and that sounds like a cliche, but it's the best compliment I can give you. Um, 
when you find yourself, and I start reading somewhere between 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the morning. So when you get up at 4.30, mm-hmm. habit from the old radio days, you know that when you're looking forward to picking that book up with your first cup of coffee, that it's it's a match made in heaven. So it's a long way of saying you're living the dream and to have that dream. But here's the point I really want to make as I ramble. You placed, and I'm, I'm big on intention, not to be over woo-woo, but if you place an intention in your mind and that comes from your heart and that in energy connects, I firmly believe that you somehow somewhere create a lot of that reality does that make sense oh 100 i mean i used to i used to literally like visualize especially in the beginning when i was just working in my office you know in nights or in the mornings and you would spend or i would spend years writing every day with nothing to show after a year, really. It was just, at first it was just ramblings. And then I would, you know, try to write a screenplay and then I would start a novel, stop a novel or, or short story. And then, and then sleeping bear. And I remember I would come home for Thanksgiving every year and I would just, you know, I'd be like, I have nothing to show like on paper really for years. And then at about year four, it was like, Oh, here we go. Wrote a draft. There's a draft. It's a really bad draft, but there's a draft. I'm finding my voice. But I always knew that if I put in the work and kind of, I don't want to say that I was unrealistically optimistic because a lot of days I am very pessimistic, but I think deep down, I knew at a certain level that I could do it. And it just required an obscene amount of work. And that's what I think a lot of people don't understand who aren't necessarily writers um, is that it takes thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours to get to a level where you can say, here is this finished product or whatever. So I, I did have that kind of that vision of what I wanted to do in my career, but I knew it took that hard, that really hard work and just, keeping yourself positive throughout years of just nothing. So, you know, that's so encouraging, but you said something that (laughs) I, I, I related to instantly and I'm in the middle of this right now. I have a really solid idea for a book. I've practiced for 10 years. So I've, I've I've published uh, nine books. Self-published nine myself. And I, I always told myself, okay, if, if you'll put in the 10,000 hours, the 10 years uh, in Hollywood, then on that 10th or 11th, you should Mm -hmm. be good to go. So I'm at that point, but I find myself doing that, Connor. I'll, I'll pick it up one day and I'll love it. The next day I'm like, man, this is just shit. What, where did I, where did I think that was going to be any good? Yeah. And then you step away and you tickle your brain another way. And then you come back and you go, okay, well, it's not so bad there. Let's just move it around. So I think what you're saying, and I, I really want the listeners um, to take away this thing, um, that the patience that it requires on the artist yeah. Yeah. Is, is tenfold, right? Correct. And a lot of people think that the patience is the that process of, the craft and it is you have to it takes years to get to a point in your craft level skill before you can really start playing the game i do see a lot of authors though they will they will do that 10 years and then 
they will have a they will have a manuscript, but it's not. It, it's let's just say hypothetically, it is good enough to get an agent. It is good enough to be published. A lot of them will immediately go. Well, then I queer I queried for six weeks and I didn't get any bites. It's like right. no, you need to be as patient on that as you are as you were on the craft of of the writing, and. You know the best the best advice I give people is like you you need to be querying for years years if if it, if that's what it takes and then during that time you are still writing you're still writing something else you have to you have to you know it, it it's a it's a skill it's a craft it's it's all these things that you need to be working while you're you know trying to essentially win the lottery to get published. <laughs> Do you think that uh, while you were sitting there on the campus of Warner Brothers? I'm very familiar with reading screenplays as an intern. Do you think a lot of that insight and accessibility and exposure helped craft your ability to write, especially dialogue? Yes. Oh, a hundred percent. And I, I was saying this, I was on a panel at Thriller Fest and someone asked me something about, do you think writing or reading scripts helped you be a novelist? And I said, it, it not only helped, but it, it sped, it sped it up. So the, what I explained is that you can write it, you can read a script in about an hour and a half. Yeah. It takes, it can take six to 10 hours to read a novel. Right. Yeah. So when I would sit I would, for two years, I would go into work and I would read between two to three scripts a day. Right. Then I did that for two years. So I learned story structure. I learned dialogue. I learned how to set up a scene. I learned all these little things because a script is essentially a microcosm of a novel, right? It's right. the bare bones skeleton of the story. So by, by being able to read, you know, thousands of horrible scripts, you know, thousands of mediocre scripts, and then few very, very good ones, your brain, because you're so attuned to reading these scripts at such a fast pace and reading so many of them, you start to see what what works, what doesn't. What is the writer doing here? What are they not doing here? You know, why was this a horrible screenplay? Why was this a great screenplay? So that that right there, and I and and I always tell aspiring writers, go online, go read screenplays, go find your favorite movies, and then go find movies that you thought sucked. Go find the script. And read what maybe it was just the director screwed up the the script, or maybe the script was dead on arrival, you know, in the first place. Right. But that that really helped me. Um, so yeah, I tell people all I tell people all the time: if you can get your hands on scripts, because you can just go through them and you can learn how this works. Yeah, there used to be a website. I want to call it Scriptorama. I wonder if that's yeah, still around. Yeah, I don't know if that is. I I, I was familiar with that one. Yeah. And here's the name I want to drop on you. Speaking of Warner Brothers, do you know a gentleman by the name of Chris Panic? Chris Panic? I don't think so, no. Oh, okay. God, I was sure that we were going to connect. Chris works in the writing department at Warner Brothers and has forever. Oh, cool. um, Yeah, we went to grad school together, and he, uh, he was one of those guys that got right out of school, went right to Warner Brothers, and I think he's coming up on retirement. Anyway, he... he, he um, he and I have this profound uh, appreciation for reading screenplays because of what exactly what you're saying. You can pick up once you get the hang of it, you yeah. can pick up a screenplay and within minutes go, mm, not it's not going to work." Or yeah. uh maybe the first act has some troubles, but yeah. I think about the friends that I used to hang out with that would read them um that were assistants like yourself yeah. and would read them and 
it, it's just an amazing education you can get. Yeah, it really is. And then, you know, when I decided that I wanted to go into, you know, writing this type of these type of thrillers in the book world, I was able to take that knowledge that I learned from reading scripts. And then I'd go and I would study every single person writing in the genre or, you know, just my favorite authors. And that's once you learn how the like the skit, like the craft of the novel works, then you can attempt to do it. But it is the doing it. You can read as much as you want, but you do have to eventually spend 80% of your time writing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah imagine that. <laughs> you, can, you, you can be an amazing critic, but if you don't work on the craft and spend those thousands of hours, you're just going to be a critic. So. Yeah. I also... Uh... This podcast has given me a great opportunity to speak with a great many people, and I'm amazed at some of the, the young talent who thinks, and it, it's not a criticism, it's a realization. They think that, oh, all I got to do is sit down and bang out some words and, you know, kind of polish a little bit and send it off. And, boy, you talk to the guys like yourself, and I think of um, Jeffrey Deaver pops to mind, and he, he will spend – a hundred pages working on an outline. Dean Kuntz said he will write a draft no less than 20 times before he feels like it's time to then jump into it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, that's when you, when you hear the, the legends say things like that, that's when you realize, no, 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 dude, you don't, you don't learn how to tune a car by just picking up a screwdriver, opening the hood. You don't learn how to perfect your golf swing by picking up a driver one day and go, I'm going to go smack some balls. You know, why would we think that you could pick up a, a keyboard or a typewriter or whatever and pencil and just bang it out, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, and speaking of influence, what writers, without putting you on the spot, and this doesn't have to be my favorite writer, but what, what are, who are some of the writers, you mentioned Vince Flynn, that gave some of the biggest impact on your writing and that and that have helped you understand the best way to craft the business of your career interesting probably my dad um my dad's a very established author he and his friends that i grew up around who are also you know famous in their own right um greg herwitz robert crace you know, they were kind of the ones when I was probably in my late teens when I decided I wanted to be a writer that I, you know, I really looked to. I sought their advice. I sought, you know, I, I mostly just observed what their day-to-day -day life was like. And it was, it's basically just you sit down and you work and you study the craft, you read a lot, and it's just you, you, I would see their lifestyle and I go, okay, that's how you can do it. You know, I'd see how my dad would treat his writing career like a nine to five job. It doesn't matter every day he gets his hours in and that's the way I approached it. And by watching them, you know, it was not only inspiring to see these working writers or these famous writers who I knew very well, but it was just like, okay, that's how you do it. It's just this type of work. And that's what, you know, and, it was hard to it was hard to get to that level because when you're starting to write, it's hard. Like when you're just beginning, sitting down to write for 15 minutes can be kind of like pulling a tooth, right? <laughs> but then you get used to that 15 minutes, and then you get used to an hour, and then you get used to two, three, four, five, or whatever, and then that's you, you know you build that habit, and 
that's what, that's mostly what they taught me. And then, and then of course, as I got more and more as sleeping bear, the drafts were getting to a point where, okay, now we're ready. That's when they would teach me kind of about, all right, well, here's the business, you know, that's how you do this, do this, this, that's how you work with an agent. This is how you, you know, work with your editor. So yeah. And I've, I've had such a great support system around me that when I do have a question, I can just call them and, and ask. Uh, let me see if I get this title correct. Is it Under the Scarlet Sky that your dad wrote? Yeah, my dad wrote Beneath. It's Beneath the Scarlet Sky. Beneath. Okay, Underneath Beneath. Um, I was doing a little homework on that. <laughs> I think I saw something like 65,000 reviews. And if I'm not mistaken, this book came out like in 2017, which is only five years ago. But that's that's an insane amount of reviews. So... I'm guessing it's a pretty popular book. Yeah, it sold millions of copies. I think, it's the <laughs> most, I think it's the most sold book, Amazon book ever. So yeah, it was a smash success. It took him 11 years to write it. It's an incredible story um, based on a true story. And then his latest one, uh, The Last Green Valley came out, I wanna say it was last year. And then he just finished his third one. Uh, these are all, this is when he started writing historical fiction. Uh, his third one, which I just read the latest draft to, and it's, in my opinion, it's the best one. Wow. Even yeah. better than Sky. Yeah. I would yeah. Say so. Wow. Yeah. That, uh, you know, it begs that same question. We all bang on the door going, what's the secret sauce? You know, what's the juice? What's the magic? We always do that. I don't know why we do this. I guess we can do that with professional athletes as well. But it's true. I mean, we, the, the secret sauce is putting in the time, doing the hard work. And when that moment comes, when all the planets align, then you have the big bang. Correct. I mean, you, you've probably heard success is when preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. You know, you know yeah. I prepared for years and years and years and years, and then I just got lucky. Right. And I, you know, I, and I, I hope I can stay lucky and, you know, keep doing what I love. And I'm sure you will. And, you know, the funny thing is, is people, uh, I think it's the people who want so desperately for the get rich quick mentality to kick in when we all know that there really is no getting rich quick. Yeah, that's so true. When I first started writing, I, I was just out of college. I was so addicted to social media. I was spending so much time on my phone and doing all this stuff that was getting in the way of writing. And, and that's why I, I remember I deleted all my social media for years and I just worked. And that was in, in my mind, I kind of like tricked myself saying, you know, all those hours that I'm wasting every day, I'm now putting into writing or, or you know, trying to perfect a craft and it worked. And that was the funniest part of, I remember when I was meeting with Simon and Schuster marketing people, I was like, well, I don't really want to have social media again because I, took it away and I got success. So, but now I'm, I'm, I'm able to limit myself. I don't go on it, you know, for the majority of the day and I'll, you know, poke yeah. in and out when I'm done writing, but yeah. yeah. Well, that is a great piece of advice and I catch myself all the time. Oh, but I, I need to stay in touch. No, you don't. Oh, I need yeah. to promote my podcast. Maybe you do, but maybe not as many hours as you're doing it. And, uh, so I think that's great advice. Folks, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll return with Connor Sullivan. Stay with us. 
Your host, David Temple here. Hey, before we get back to the show, I thought I would throw in this one quick note. I have had authors approach me who want to actually advertise on the show. And I'm like, that's cool. I love that idea. I mean, think about it. We feature the best thriller writers in the world. You're one of the new up-and-coming thriller writers in the world to be. And you have a book coming out. Our rates are super reasonable. (laughs) We're easy to work with, as you know. And we all want to work together to make success for all of us. Just reach out to us here at The Thriller Zone at thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Let's talk rates. Let's talk details. Let's do something together in the new year. I think you'll like it. Now, back to the show. The best thrillers, the thriller zone. And now, back to the show. And look who's here. Wait. Hey! I, we have a, uh, a new feature to the show called Pop-In Co-Host. <laughs> Special guest host appearance. And he literally just popped in. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Connor Sullivan and now Brian Andrews. You may know him from a little writing duo called Andrews Wilson. Welcome to the show, dude. Thanks. I had to crash this party because I've been wanting to chat with Connor, especially about this book. How you doing, Brian? Good to see you. Good, man. How are you? I'm good. You recovering from that last night at Thriller Fest? (laughs) Yeah. I don't think anybody got any sleep that night. No, we, yeah, that was rough. And uh, yeah, it was about 3.30 in the morning, I think we left the bar after some beer. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the, the flight back definitely hurt, I'll say that. <laughs> and fortunately, though, we, we solved all the world's problems and figured out, yeah. you know, the next 10 years yeah. of our respective careers. So it was very productive. Night. It, was, it was great, yes. <laughs> yeah, and Brian, speaking of productive, we had just before we went into get heading to break, uh, we were talking about what a uh, time life suck social media can often be and that uh we'll often go well i need to check on what's happening in the world as though that's really pertinent when what you really should be doing is sitting down and writing (laughs) yeah yeah and now you know they have this new do not disturb feature and i can click it on the like corner of my screen uh, because if I don't, you know, those alerts are popping up and it, it really is a distraction and it just sucks you out of your writing. So it's, it's, uh, it's think, something you have to be disciplined about these days. Yeah. And Connor, I was going to ask you this. Do you think it's, it's, it's much like a muscle that you train to, I think sometimes we, we take those, uh, planned, uh, diversions so that we can distract ourselves because what we really don't want to do is we don't really want to be writing right now. We either had a brain lapse or a brain fart and we're just like, yeah. well, let me just go over here. But it's really, we're, we're kidding ourselves, aren't we? Correct. I had a, I had a teacher, a writing professor who taught me something. I think it was like the, pretty much the first day of his, of his class. He said, if you want to be successful in this business, you need to write like it's 1992. And I said, what does that mean? And he goes, we didn't have any internet. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have all these distractions. So the first thing he, he said is that you go back to 1992. This is what he did. He, he has a pager from that era that if his wife or needs him or there's an emergency, he gets paged. In his office, there's no cell phones. There's no internet. It's just writing. And I really, when I'm, when I'm on deadline and I'm, you know, stressed out and, it's so easy to just get overwhelmed and then you pick up you pick up this thing and then 
all of a sudden an hour goes by. So what I try to do is I, I don't even take my cell phone in my office with me. I try to I just turn off the internet and I'll be working in a four hour chunk. And if you know my wife needs me or someone needs me, an emergency has ever happened, I got this little like buzzer thing on Amazon that if you know if, if the house is burning down, you can come get me. Other than that, <laughs> yeah, I'm working. Brian, what's your what's your fix? Because I know you've got one. I, I do think that the four-hour block is a good amount of time. I've sort of settled on something similar. Three to four-hour block is a good productivity window. And, you know, I have kids, so when they're at school, that's obviously the most productive time. And, I, you know, I used to be a, night, a guy who would write at night. So night, you know, when I was younger, that was my productive time. Now, uh, I don't think that that, that prose is, 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 tends to be... It's a little more creative, but it's a little less structured. Um, so now I feel like my best writing time is after I've gotten up, you know, had breakfast, morning, right? You know, between morning and lunch, that's my most productive time. So I try to yeah. block that out and not do business stuff. Yeah. I've also found that if I stick away, stay away from anything that engages what I call the monkey mind, whether it's social media, oh, I need to see that or need to follow that or need to check on that or... You know, oh, I need to check the headlines. No, you don't. Everything's going to be fine. Nothing's going yeah. anywhere. It, it, I think it's just, it's a little game we play with ourselves. And if you just say, shut it down, you're you're much better off. I agree. <laughs> All right, uh, Brian, just to catch you up, we basically talked about this fantastic book, Sleeping Bears, you know. Oh, um, excellent. Which uh, I, I, want, I want you to jump in. I don't want you to, you know, bang it too hard over the head, but... Give us your thoughts because we uh, we did have a couple we did share a couple of notes along the way and I think my big takeaway was uh, this is my favorite thing, dude. You uh, this is for you, Connor. Your chasings like when you get down to about two thirds of the way in the book, that chase those chasings, I'm I sweat thinking about them. I don't know what you've done to master that thing, but uh, it made me think of Brian. I think you gave a a talk. It thriller fest and you'd said something about write the scene slow and it's happening fast and vice versa. Yeah. But whatever that thing was, I'm like, oh, Connor's kind of doing that. And it's just mind numbing. All right. I asked you a question. Then I started babbling. So jump in there. Oh, I love this damn book. It's a great book. And I've been dying to talk to you about it, too. So are you wondering about are you wondering about the chase scene how I wrote that or are you talking about the the airplane scene or the well, chase scene app like on the ground Well I loved them both I mean that's like saying which one's your favorite child well I like Billy but Sally's good too <laughs> Um yeah uh, I think go ahead go ahead No 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 it's all you babe Well I if I remember correctly when writing we'll, we'll just take the airplane scene yeah. I do the intercutting between the action in the air and what's going on in the ground. And by doing that, I'm, you're able to show, you're able to do a lot of high octane action. And then you're going to let, you let the reader breathe a little bit, get a little bit more of the sense of what's happening from the outside. And then you put them back into the action and you jump back and forth on that. So it's not necessarily just all gas pedal. You're, you're, you're breaking too to give the reader kind of a breather. And then you're moving back and forth based off of that. And that's the way I, um, uh, when I would study thriller writers in our genre, you know, the really good ones will will do that. 
Um, and that was, you know, me just kind of t- my own take on that. Uh, yeah. Multiple yeah. Works. I think Vince Flynn and Brad Thor, both of them pop into mind as, as capturing that technique. And Brian, so that I don't look like a complete idiot, refresh my memory as to the, because you can boil that down into one word, what I just tried to attack. Well, you know, I think the temptation for a lot of thriller writers is to, especially if they're not former military or haven't, you know, served in law enforcement, you know, they're uncomfortable trying to write action or write about special forces. So the temptation is to try to cram it all in to, you know, a short, intense period of time. And that's kind of what we were talking about in that um, that panel that Jeff and I did that class was about it's okay to stretch it out. You know, this is the exciting stuff. So make it last a while. You know, the, the metaphor we used is you go to Disney World and you wait two hours in line to get on a ride and it's over in 50 seconds and you're like, man, I wish that roller coaster was twice as long. And so as a writer, you know, we have that ability. It's just, it's up to us to do multi-chapter action scenes and, and, and push yourself to extend the action because the readers want that. Yeah, that's the way. That's it. That's exactly it. <clears throat> and Connor, you nailed that exactly. And now that I flash back and I'm playing that in my mind, it is the way you intercut it, which was uh, and it was fun because you find yourself racing in this direction. And then just about the time you're like, how long can this go? You give me a breather. I'm like, OK, whew. all right, there's something over here happening. I mean, that's this. This is the great personification of reason why I read thrillers, because Let's face it, life can be uh, a little more ordinary and you just want something that rips by and puts you in a world that you probably will never spend time in, you know? 100%. And that's kind of the reason why I chose this genre to write in, the, this kind of high-octane thriller genre is because in this day and age, you know, again, we're competing with this, yeah. you know, we're, we're competing with people's attention. And I knew that if I can write one of these books that will turn pages, so to speak, well, guess what? I, I, I feel like that is what can compete against this technology that we're all just getting bombarded with all the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I just I wanted to write kind of one of these high octane things that you don't want to put it down. And so hopefully, hopefully but I there's also it. there's also great character work uh, in the book. Like, I, I think for me, you know, one of the things when you sort of you, you, when you're reading a novel, you're introduced to new characters, and at some point, you get hooked. You know, when is the hook? When does the hook suck you in? And for me, uh, it was a scene where, um, you know, Gail has learned that his daughter's missing, and he's he's in the mindset of, I'm going to be a one-man rescue machine. Right. And, you know, he's with M, and she sets him down, and she's like, you know, she basically kind of does the the slap across the face, the metaphorical slap across the face. It's like, Dad, you know what? Actually, I've been the one that's held this family together. While you were off dealing with your grief, I was the one that raised Cassie and that kept the ranch running and made sure all the bills got paid. And, you know, I got goosebumps just thinking about that scene because I think, you know, for us to care about these people and whether they survive, you have to respect them as people and, and care about their family. So that family dynamic was very powerful. I, I think you did a masterful job with, with that scene and those characters in particular. 
Well, thank you. Yeah, it it took a very long time to find those characters and their voices and again, those emotional gut punches. That's kind of what I call them. Why should the reader care about your characters? And that by doing kind of that family dynamic, I was like, it took multiple iterations before I was able to go, okay, there it is. There's that emotional um, kind of that gut punch where we go, okay, now they're all in. Now they're all going to go try to find her. Yeah. Yeah. And you had, you sort of split time, a lot of time between Gail and, and Cassie. Yep. I mean, did you, I sort of feel like you had two protagonists. Yep. Did you feel that way yourself or did you really, I mean, are you leaning towards, who? who is the hero in your mind of your book or is it the two of them together? I would say it was the, it is the two of them. Um, I, listen guys, when I was writing this book, I was so scared because I kept, I kept telling my dad, I have never seen anything like this. I just did 50 pages in the beginning of one character and then on page 53 or whatever, I introduced the new I introduced Gail. I hadn't really seen that done before. And then I took a, essentially a woman goes missing in the woods book and I turn it into this political thriller. And I just kept, and as I'm writing multiple versions of this book, I just kept telling my dad, I'm done. I'm an idiot. I've just wasted years (laughs) of my life. This is just, I've never seen anything like this. And he goes, that's a very good thing. And I go, okay. He's like, as long as the reader is turning the page and he's in, they're invested in the characters, different is good. Yeah. So, and it, yeah, he's right. You know, I didn't when I really did not believe in myself or my book. You know, <laughs> his kind of that that push to say different is good. Um, it, it's true. So that's such a great po- place to make this next statement, and I love that. By the way, Connor, I'm thinking to myself. How important do you see it? Because uh, I see it instantly. How important do you see it surrounding yourself with fellow creators uh, who not only help influence your success, but really help influence that mindset of like, you got this. And not, not to make it sound like, yeah, dude, you got this. But you know what I mean? It's, it's, it seems to be so essential. It, it really is. And I, and I always, you know, when I, when it, when all the, Press was coming out when I did sign my deal. You know, I was putting it on social. I'd create social media again and put it on social media. <laughs> and all my friends were like, oh, you know, your dad write your book for you? And it's like, no, he didn't. But, <laughs> but what he did do is he was just emotional support, you know? And this is before, you know, I really got involved with this great community that we all, you know, are a part of with Thriller Fest and VoucherCon and all these places. Um, but yeah, it was it was when I was kind of at my lowest. He would always kind of pick me up and go, "Okay, what's the problem? How are you going to tackle that problem? Or when are you going to stop feeling sorry for yourself?" And then you know you just get back on your feet and you just do it again and again and again. And then yeah, so it, it that was that support system initially has been great, and now I have a great support system with people I know now. Um, Taylor Moore has been great. Um, I don't know if you've had him on the podcast. He was a debut this last year. His second book just came out a couple of weeks ago. And then um, uh, David McCluskey. He's just. Oh, yeah. So. David McCluskey's just a solid dude, man. He's just you meet him and you're like you you instantly love him. And then you read his book and you're like, OK, there's no way that's a debut. And it's. Yeah. Pff, yeah forget yeah. about it. You just like him because he's as tall as you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's about a foot taller than me, has great hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the and the dude can party nonstop too. Yeah, I just yeah. want to go on record. <laughs> he's just such a talent. 
I don't think he understands what a talent he is. I would try to make sure he never understands that. We'll bleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got a question for Connor. Uh, yeah. Okay, this is something that's interesting for me as a as a fellow author. When did you decide on when in the process did you decide on the title? Before you started, or as the book was being written? I submitted it to age to my agent without a title, or it might have had a title. I think I was I called it like Sharashka or something, and I didn't I couldn't think of a title for it because again it was so different. I had no idea where I could categorize this in the, you know, in the canon of, of thriller literature. So I did, I couldn't think of it. And it was actually my agents, uh, who came up with sleeping bear. And then, um, again, I had another title for, uh, for wolf trap and then the, the publishing house, uh, created wolf trap. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm now I'm zero for two on me picking my, <laughs> just, no, that's okay. Because I feel like um, title selection is very tricky, and it um, sometimes it's, it takes a certain type of mind to capture the zeitgeist of the book. And it's interesting because you know I think Jeff and I are fifteen novels in now, and it's been different for every book. Sometimes we'll start with a title in mind, and that's been the title that carries us through because we had a feel for what the book was. Other books we've turned in, like like you did, we've turned them in, and the editor or publisher says, you know, this doesn't feel right. Uh, why don't we look at this? And when that right title hits, you know it. You just feel it. Everybody's on board with it the instant it's proposed. But when it's a wrong title, a lot of times people can say, well, it doesn't feel right, but they can't give you a better choice. Correct. Yeah, correct. And it's funny as I look at it now, when I very first picked it up, I'm like, oh, that's that's clever. I actually wrote a short story that I turned into a short film called Poke the Sleeping Bear. So I had a certain affinity for it instantly. But then when you get through the book, you're like, well, it can't be any other title in the entire world but Sleeping Bear mm-hmm. because of its metaphor as well as its catchiness. Um and, and another thing I wanted to say, and, and very because of the volume of books I read, I wanted to give you this compliment, Connor, is that there is not, and Brian, you'll probably echo this, not a not an ounce of fat on this puppy. And you think, well, yeah, there's bound to be a little bit of fat. I'm like, no. And I'm looking at just knocking on 400 pages. There's not an ounce of fat on it. Well, you can credit my my agents and my wonderful editor to that because when I submitted to my agents, I think the it was a, I think Sleeping Bear was almost one hundred and forty thousand words, and then we got it down to one sixteen, and that took about four months of work. And my uh, my agents had this amazing uh, initial way of editing, so I submitted to them. They go, "It's great. We need to cut it down." And I go like content wise. And they're like, no, I think all the content's fine. We just need to go. I want, they, they gave me this exercise. They say every single page, you cut one sentence. And I said, what? They go cut one sentence per page. So I, I spent about three weeks every day. I cut one sentence per page. I, I cut over 12,000 words that way. Wow. And then they, I submitted it again and I, well, I gave it to them again. And it was like, you know, it was probably like high one twenties at that point. And they said, you need to do that again. And they said, this time you need to cut 
a sentence worth of words per page, not necessarily eat a sentence, but if you can cut, you know, five to 10 words per page, watch what happens. And I said, that's impossible. And then I did it and I got down to 116 and they said, could you do it again? And I said, no, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) And this was the same, I did the same thing with Wolf Trap. Wolf Trap was very bloated when I gave it to Emily and it was, it was a big book. And I did the same thing and I cut about 20,000 words that way. And it's still a huge book, but it's, it's still, it's uh, yeah, I got, I did the same thing. And that's, that's done always be part of my process because it's, it, it, it works. And I was, I was surprised it worked to tell you the truth. I love that exercise. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you got to understand that when I, when I gave my agents this 140 word manuscript, I thought it was tight. I had revised it hundreds of times. I thought I could not take anything out of it. And I ended up just completely, you know, I took 60 pages out at the end of the day there after I thought it was perfect. So to people, to people listening to this, you know, when you think that your manuscript cannot be touched, it's just print it out, get a red pen and just go to town on it. And that's what I did and it worked for me. So hopefully maybe that, that advice will work for other authors or inspiring authors as well. Man, you're giving me another thought, and we touched on this when we started the show, is that just when you think, oh, no, it's perfect where it is, there's always room for carving off some of the fat. So such a great takeaway from the show. Um, don't you agree, Brian? And I would imagine to, to ask you a question, with, with a writing partner, who on your side, as it relates to Connor, who on your team between you and Jeff is better at, oh no, that needs to be just yanked out because it really isn't pushing it forward or maybe it's already been stated before. I think the difference between us, uh, between co-authoring and having a successful co-authoring partnership versus writing by yourself is from the very beginning we said, well, everything has to be free game to be edited by the other person. And what that does is it liberates you from guarding your prose, right? So I think the natural inclination for every writer is once you've written something, you think that, well, I wrote it, so it's good. I I wrote it the first time, so it needs to be there. I put it there because I wanted to say it. And I think as you mature and you write more books, you start to realize, well, just because you wrote something on Tuesday doesn't mean it's a good idea on Friday or doesn't mean that you can't, like Connor said, say it in a more succinct or better way. It's funny because like uh, David, like with with, uh, the career authors posts that you so generously uh, prepared for us, tips on podcasting, by the way. (laughs) So if you're listening, check out David's post on tips on podcasting. But we post on Facebook and on Twitter. And it's funny, you know, Twitter has the character limit. So if I go to post the post on Facebook and I say what I want it to be about, If I copy and paste it onto Twitter, it's always too long. So then I'll go back and I'll say, okay, how can I say the same thing just as well in fewer characters? And it 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 never fails. After I fit it onto Twitter, I'm like, oh, this is better. So then I go back and I change the Facebook post to match the Twitter one. But I think the point is like a lot of times when we're trying to get an idea out of our head, We say it with a lot of words because we're trying to formulate the idea into words as we're writing it. 
And once it's on the page, you can look at it, you can say, okay, I understand what I was trying to say. Now I'm gonna say it cleaner, and I'm gonna say it in a way that when I read it out loud, it sounds better. A lot of authors don't ever read their books out loud. And so you don't realize how verbose it is until you try to say it. You're like, oh, nobody would say that. They'd just say this. And now you've cut out you know, 15 words out of dialogue. Yep. And I do that too. I, I do everything out loud after I, like when I'm kind of getting closer to the end in terms of drafts and it's more of a complete product, I will read my book out loud twice. And then I will put it in, I write in Scrivener, but then I'll put it into Microsoft Word and I will put it to the readover voice. So Microsoft Word will read the book to me and I'll, then I'll, re, I'll go through and then I'll change the accent. So it'll be you know, an Irish woman reading it back to me. And you will be so surprised how many things you catch doing yep. that. Sentences that are clunky, dialogue that is clunky, um, or you, I can just cut all that because I just heard someone else say it differently than my internal voice saying it. Yeah. And I will tell your listeners that is a very double-edged sword because I have spent I spent hundreds of hours procrastinating and listening to my great words while I was writing Wolf Trap and not <laughs> writing. So, so you gotta you know it is a great tool to have, but I would say use it kind of sparingly and more at the end. Yeah. You know, I want to. I don't, I don't want to forget this. There is. Um, I'm a fan of people who snag blurbs from other authors who uh, who I respect, and you have a bevy of them. I mean, you got uh, Tess Gerritsen, Robert Degani, Greg Hurwitz, Chris Hotty, Robert Crace. But the one that that grabbed my my attention, and I wanted to know how you got this, as though there's a secret formula again. <laughs> Is how did you get James Patterson? Did he just happen to pick it up and read it? I mean, you know that because that's such a not that he's the end all, but that's a pretty big stamp of approval on the top when he says one of the very best thrillers you'll read this year. I mean, bam! Yeah. So the story behind that is my dad is a co-author with Patterson. Um, they've been friends for I don't know twelve years and. I, he knew Jim knew I was writing a book and he was kind of one of the early guys who said, you know, maybe you shouldn't go into Hollywood and you should get into the world of publishing because people are a lot nicer and it's not so cutthroat. <laughs> and he's told me the most hilarious stories over the years about that. But yes, that was that's what I did. I really took that to heart. So when the book was ready, Emily bought it. I got an ARC. I think it was Christmas 2019. I just had this inkling. I went, you know, it's the holidays. Maybe he's not working as much. Maybe <laughs> he's reading. So I just sent him the, I sent him the book, and I wrote him a nice handwritten note saying, "Hi, Mr. Patterson. You know, it's Connor. I wrote a book. Emily Bessler's my uh, my editor." You know, if you have the time, I would love for you to read it. I didn't even ask for a blurb. I never thought this was going to happen. And then I think, yeah, it was it was like uh, maybe 10 days later, I get this email from this weird account and it was his assistant and he does everything through it. She types it. I don't even know if he knows how to type. He writes all everything longhand. And he was just like, I picked up your book on Christmas Day and I read it the whole day. And 
he was, he just wrote me this amazing, very nice email saying, you know, it's very rare that I read a debut like this and it knocks my socks off, you know, congratulations, keep up the hard work. And then he gave me some more advice about stuff. And, and then he, uh, he goes, PS, thousands of readers are going to hate you for killing the dog. (laughs) (laughs) And then he, uh, and then he gave me a very nice blurb at the end. So I, and I wrote him again, I, I thanked him and he just said, you know, it, it's, it's so, this business is so cutthroat. It's so hard. You know, I will do, he, he does a lot for debut authors. So I, 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 I thanked him profusely for that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And I do hate you for killing the dog. I will have to admit that. No. <laughs> I get, and he was great. I get, I get angry emails every oh, day, yeah. every day. And it just, without fail, it was to the point where I took my email address off my website and you can just talk to my agents. And it, yeah. it was just funny because I was telling Patterson, I was like, yep, you were, you were right. So yeah, but probably no angry emails about killing the Bulgarian. Yeah. No, no angry emails <laughs> about the, all the hundreds of people or dozens of people that died in my novel, but the, <laughs> All right, before we uh, get eaten up by time, I do want to take a quick second to talk about Wolf Trap because we mentioned it earlier. And I know that drops in March of next year. Is yep. it safe to say, or it, should I assume or, or not, that it's a sequel or another standalone? So this is another standalone that I hope okay. I can do a sequel to um, and hopefully turn into a series. That's all up in the air. But uh, Wolf Trap is a book that I've wanted to write for. I don't know, 10 years. I've had this character in my head since I was probably 19 years old. And, you know, back then he was a Navy SEAL who was, you know, SEAL Team 6 commander. He's basically based off one of my best friends. And uh, it was around that time that I would I would go back and I was reading the beginnings of Brad Thor and Scott Harbath. And I was like, wait a minute. He is a Navy SEAL. He basically, I basically subconsciously created the same character that has been done so many times that I went in kind of a different direction and picked this other unit um, that I, I also know a bunch of individuals in, and I wrote the book that I you know always wanted to write. It's very international thriller, more Vince Flynn esque than let's say um, Sleeping Bear. Gotcha, and a good uh, target to aim for, right? I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, a quick question, because I've, I've, I've noticed this on your social media and uh, I've got and it's perfect timing on what we just said, that I have such a special place in my heart for dogs. You have two that I've seen on social media. Big old. Yeah. What is that? A Burmese? Uh, St. Bernard. St. Bernard. And what's the other speckled? Uh, he's an English setter. OK, gorgeous. Yeah. And uh, uh, the St. Bernard is a character in Wolf Trap, so she will be making her debut. Her name is Matilda. I've uh, just lost my uh, buddy of 13 years to cancer, and so um, it's been, I'll tell you, the not to belabor this, but the thing that has been the hardest is the crushing silence. You, you never realize how much you might take the their presence for granted. Ugh, then sure. yeah. crazy. Um, all right. Before we get to uh, rapid fire questions, I gotta ask my often classic closing uh, closing question that uh, listeners have come to love, and that's this: knowing the relatively short path that you've taken thus far, what would be a huge one? I might add, what would be the best piece of advice you would offer, Connor, to aspiring writers? Uh, 
write what scares the shit out of you. <laughs> I'm saying write out of your comfort zone. Write things that you think you could never do. And I do think that under that kind of that pressure cooker situation of being incredibly self-conscious, of being having imposter syndrome, having not believing you're dumb, all that's like if you write something that's so above what you are you think you're capable of, you will push yourself to do that. And I think it's like, you know, you create diamonds under pressure. I'm not saying that my work are diamonds, but I do think that if you're uncomfortable a lot while you're trying to do something, you will surprise yourself at the end. Uh, if you stick with it and you, you put the time in and you, you have that kind of that grit. Um, so yeah, it would be right. What kind of scares the shit out of you right out of your comfort zone. That is pretty dang superb. And Brian, do you have a closing question before I hit him with some of the rapid fire questions, which you know all too well about? Sure. I have one more question for you. In every book that I've written, there's been at least one chapter or scene that was emotionally difficult to write. What was that scene for you in Sleeping Bear? <laughs> All right. So I wrote this, uh, I wrote this chapter towards the end of the book. Um, and it was my favorite chapter. And I just, I, you know, would walk around patting myself on the back because I thought it was just so brilliant and so well done. About four or five months before I submitted Sleeping Bear to my agents, I, my dad's always been my first reader. So I gave him the book and he read it while I was actually on my honeymoon. And uh, he'd never read anything I've ever written in ever. And that was, you know, for four or five years of me trying to be a writer, he never read a word. And so I gave him that and, you know, I was having all these dreams of every night. It was like, it sucks kid, you know, or <laughs> it's great. And, and, uh, he did call me about a week into my honeymoon and said, I'm halfway done. I love it. And I'm like, Whoa, okay. Finishes it a couple of days later. And he goes, I finished your book. And he goes, I, I loved it. Congratulations. You know, I think you're going to have some success with this. And I go, did you read that chapter? And he goes quiet and he goes, yeah, so that's the only thing you need to cut. <laughs> and I go, what? Oh. And he goes, you basically wrote, you were doing this huge climatic ending, building into the climax, action everywhere. And you just stop and you do this whole exposition laced chapter of Artur, the scientist and how he got into the Sharaska and what his motivation was. And it was just, I remember crying as I'm writing it because it's just so beautiful and the research involved. It was just, it was perfect. And I had to cut the whole thing and he was right. I went back and I read it because you just don't want to stop that action right in the climax. And it was just such a move <laughs> on my part. But I remember that all the time because, you know, you have to be willing, as Stephen King, I think, famously said, kill your darlings. And your darlings are these these sentences, these paragraphs, these pages, these chapters that you just love or these characters that you love. And you have to be willing to do that. And that was just that will always stick with me. So that was definitely the most emotional. Uh, <laughs> um, it was even more emotional. Uh, I cried writing it and I cried cutting it. We'll just say that. <laughs> That's great. I love that story. That's a great story. Yeah. 
<laughs> I think that some of the reasons that we uh, are so hesitant to kill the darlings is we don't think we can create anything that fantastic ever again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. All right. That was superb. All right. It is time for a little rapid fire questions. <laughs> Nobody gets hurt here. All right. Um, I you're prepping just watch. For- this is great yeah. for me. <laughs> great. All right. You're prepping for a solo journey to clear your head and prep for your next book. The pups are in the back and you're putting on some music for the long road trip. What artist or genre are you listening to? For a road trip? Uh, Definitely Pearl Jam. I noticed that I was, I wrote Wolf Trap to Pearl Jam for like a year. I don't know why. I just, I was just the, what was it? They, they did like a, was it a BBC uh, live? It was either BBC or MTV Unplugged uh, back okay. in the early '90s, and it was just—it was right when they were just at their peak, it, early on. And for some reason, I just listened to that all the time. So yeah, I'd probably say Pearl Jam. Awesome. Okay. All right. Well, now you've prepped the lodge. You've landed, prepped the lodge, set out for a day hike when suddenly you're caught in a rising storm. What are the three tools you are so glad you brought with you? <laughs> what kind of storm? Is this winter or summer? Uh, let's go with winter. Winter? Well, I yeah. hope I have a sleeping bag, a shovel, and I probably need a lighter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And if I could have a fourth day, that would be a small flask of whiskey. <laughs> All right. In celebration of your huge success, I've asked you to join me and Brian out here in San Diego for a weekend of golf and fun. It's going to be fun and golf, probably a little bit of cocktails. Now, we need a fourth to round out the group. So who would you invite, living or dead, and why? And again, this is to be an entire weekend of fun. So it'll be lots of conversation. So think about that as you choose your fourth partner. It'd be Stephen King. A hundred percent. I would love to pick that guy's mind. You know, it would just, I would just, I, yeah, a hundred percent. Okay. King. Put you on the spot. He's just joined the podcast and he says, I've got time. Connor, great book, by the way. I got time for one question. What is it? Mm-hmm. Take your time. You'll be talking amongst yourselves. This is that I I hate this question more than anything because I it, I get asked it weekly or even daily, and I think I I would ask my least favorite question to him, and it would be, where do you get your ideas? <laughs> <laughs> the one question I never ask. And that's the question I hate when people ask me because I'm like, I don't know where I get my ideas. Sure. Daydream or so. I don't. I don't really know. But I there's something as someone as prolific as him. There yeah. has to be some something's going on that's not uh, worldly. You know. Yeah. So I would love to. I would love to ask him that question and for him to give me a legitimate answer. You know. Yeah. So. I've heard a variety of uh, ideas of how he was prolific in his early years, which I won't uh, duplicate in case it's not true. But even with that uh, influence, you still have to have a mind that operates at a higher, more specific 
frequency than your average bear sleeping. Yeah, I think you have to have a curious mind. You have to be curious about not only the human condition, which I think one of the ways that he's been so successful is that he's willing to sort of probe uh, the thoughts and emotions that a lot of us just keep to ourselves, you know, uh, you know, whether it's violence or intimacy or perversion, you know, he's not afraid to play around with all those things. Yeah. And I also think you have to have a curious mind just about the world in general. You know, if you're not interested in politics or technology or health or sociology, history, if you're not interested in those subjects, you're not going to be a good author because it's that curiosity and the tying together, you know, past and present and where are we going and how does this affect me as a person that makes good storytelling. And I think that's where he's outshine everybody consistently throughout his career and why he's so talented. Yeah. I agree. And you know what, Brian and Connor, I don't know if this is true and I, I'm doing a little bit of laundry here in public, but um, I have uh, a, a challenge that when I sit down to write and now I know why some of the prolific writers are drunks because of this very thing. I have such a monkey on the shoulder that yeah, does a little bit of this. I'm not sure that's really that good. Is that a right idea? You, should you be going that direction? Not really sure about that. I'll have a maybe a cocktail, maybe one glass of wine, maybe a beer. Something about the mix-up in the chemistry just makes me go, hey, you know what? If it's not good, who cares? I'm going to keep writing. I'm not sitting here endorsing getting drunk to write. What I'm saying is there's something that happens that that stops the judgmental third voice that just goes, hey, write it. See how it feels. If it doesn't work, bada bing. You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, I remember when I, when I really started to take a crack at this right at the beginning, I was, you know, you, you always hear the romanticized, tortured soul, whatever. <laughs> and, you know, I tried to write with a cocktail. I just can't do it. I have to be stone sober. I can't even, you know, have a few the night before because if my brain's a little bit foggy, I can't, I can't tap into what I need to tap to and into. But uh, yeah, I, I, you know, writing my second book, I did get a lot of that. I, I had way more imposter syndrome writing Wolf Trap than Sleeping Bear, just because now, you know, I have a contract. Now I'm supposed to do it again and. That's when you're like, oh man, maybe a cocktail would kind of make me feel better, but it never, it would just never work. So I'd always have to write very uh, conscious, heavy, we'll say. Yeah. How about you, Brian? Thoughts on that? Just uh, yeah, general? no, Jeff and I have a motto in it. The motto is we'll fix it in DE. And what we mean by that is, you know, in developmental edit, we'll fix any of the problems. So write fearlessly, you know, um, don't worry about it. you got to ignore that voice. You know, kick that voice out of your office because just write the best you can for that day, you know, and whatever comes out that day is what you produce. And then you go the next day, the next day, the next day. And then once you have the, the rough draft, then you can, it's like, hey, I got, I got words on the page. Now, now how do I make them better? But until they're there, you don't really know how to make them better. They have to be on the page to improve them. Yeah, a hundred percent. I have this great analogy I, t I tell aspiring writers that if you look at a book as say a, a full statue, what is it, the statue of David or whatever, mm -hmm. you can spend you can spend so much time making the statue of David's hand out of that marble the best hand ever, 
right? You could go back and you could rework the nails and the fingers and the veins or whatever. But if you never work on the whole thing first, a rough outline of the statue, you know, you have to, then you can go back and work on every little detail. Yep. So I always tell aspiring writers, cause this is a pitfall that I wasted years of my life doing, you know, working on the first act of a book instead of writing the full thing through, then going back. Cause you can, as soon as it's done, you can go back and you can change everything. You know, you can make this word better, change this whole chapter, make this character do this, but you gotta have the full, you gotta be working with the full statue, not just the hand. That is so good. Well, that's such a visceral and visual example. So good. Hey, Brian, thanks for popping in for our pop-in co-host special edition. It was great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me crash your party, Connor. Of course. Great seeing you. Will you be at BoucherCon? Not this year, unfortunately, okay. but I will be at Thriller Fest. In the, in okay, the cool. Well, I want to challenge you both guys to be save save your money. Go to BoucherCon next year when it's right here in my backyard, and you can uh, we'll go turn that force together. A guest we room? Yes, we do. Okay, <laughs> it's called it's called the uh, booth right here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Connor, thank you so much, man. This was such a nice treat to be able to sit down and spend some time with you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. And folks, to learn more, visit ConnorSullivanAuthor.com and follow him on Twitter at C. Sullivan Books. Once again, guys, Brian, I'll talk to you later. Connor, boy, what a good, good time and uh, what a mad talent you are. Well, thank you so much. Thanks again for having me. Now, that's what I call a determined, talented writer. Connor Sullivan, Sleeping Bear. I could not put this thing down. I challenge you to read it. I think you'll feel the same way. And how about the uh, surprise pop-in co-host guest, Brian Andrews of Andrews Wilson fame. He's such a cool dude. I so like him. This thriller community is so awesome. I'm so grateful for being a part of it. So thank you once again to Connor. All right. Now, next episode, <laughs> I, I got a copy of this uh, arc sometime back, and I was very excited to tear into it, and I'm almost done. And this gentleman is an award winner, right, left, and center. His name is Adam Hamdi, and the book is called The Other Side of Night. I can say, without a doubt, this is unlike any book you'll ever read. It starts off one way and you think you have it figured out, and it ends up another. It's deep and complex, and you're going to love it. The Other Side of Night. Now, here's an inside scoop. You're going to love this. I'm giving away four copies of Other Side of Night to lucky listeners. All you got to do is write me. That's it. Drop me an email, thethrillerzone at gmail.com. All right, number one. Number two, tell me uh, in the subject, hey, I want that I want that Adam and people. And number three, tell us where you're writing in from and why you'd like to book. That's it. All there is to it. Number one, thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Number two, make sure I know that this is the book you want. And number three, tell me why you want it. We're going to draw names. We got four copies and I'll send it to you. Bada bing, bada boom. All right, that's next week. All right, so I got to scoot out of here. I'm David Temple, your host, and I'll see you next time for another edition of The Thriller Zone.
The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.